0: Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, we're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to biographer and literary agent Andrew Lowney. Andrew founded his literary agency in 1988, which has since gone on to become world-renowned, currently working with around 350 authors. His biography of John Buchanan was published in 1995, and Andrew's since gone on to publish books on Guy Burgess and the Mampannans. His latest book, The Traitor King, which explores the lives of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor post-application, was published on the 19th of August. Andrew, welcome to Mostly Books
1: Meet. Very nice to be here.
0: I'd like to start off, as I do with most of my guests, by going right back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You were born in Kenya and then moved to Bermuda when you were five years old. They must have been pretty interesting places to live
1: and to grow up. Yes, they were. I mean, sadly, I don't really remember Kenya. I mean, I have stories from my parents, but I certainly remember Bermuda very vividly. I lived there till the age of about 10. My father worked for the colonial office and was posted to these places. And it was. It was a very idyllic childhood. You can imagine going to the beach and living very much outside. And I suppose that's where I really began to read a lot. Books were sent out to us. My father used to get the time sent out almost weekly. And then he would go through them a week later, reading Monday on the following Monday and apportion them out. Fantastic. So it was a really slightly remote world. And the books were sent out often for birthdays. They were kept by my mother in her sewing room. My sister and I would go and read them secretly before we were given them and then have to express pleasure when we were given them three months later. (laughs) So I was brought up really on the normal staples of Enid Blyton and people. But there were a number of writers I see now out of print, a man called Malcolm Savile and various American books, I suspect, that we got that people brought up in Britain didn't read.
0: It's always really interesting, actually, because I never really considered that growing up, the difference in culture and what kind of books you're exposed to as a child. I spent some time living in the USA and talking to people about what your childhood books were. I just kind of assumed naively that we all read the same things. But of course you don't, do you?
1: No, not at all. And I mean, for television particularly, I mean, some people have clearly a whole group of programs that they grew up with, but they're not the programs I grew up with. I grew up with Sesame Street and various things like that. But it did give me a much more sort of transatlantic view of things than perhaps if I'd just been brought up here.
0: Yeah, it was probably quite nice also with the books coming over from the UK to give you that link to the UK. Who was it that sent them to you?
1: Who sent them? I had an aunt who sent them for birthdays. That was really my only close family relation. So yeah, she sent them and World of Wonder and Look and Learn, all of which I found clearing out my parents' house. Still there, huge collections going back to the 1960s.
0: Oh, that's so amazing, isn't it? When you find your childhood books, I've got the same, I've got my collection of Anna Green Gables actually in the same room as I'm sat in right now, which all the pages are very yellowed and very well-thumbed. takes you back, doesn't it?
1: It does, it does. It's very evocative.
0: So what was the first book you remember reading?
1: Gosh, that's a good question. I I remember a book, I think it was written by C.S. Lewis, called The Otterbury Incident, which I remember having from school and feeling rather guilty because I borrowed it from school and then didn't return it. So that's the one that sticks in my mind. I mean, I'm sure there were others. I mean, there were always lots of books in the house. And in fact, I came from a family of writers. My father had written books, my grandmother had written books, and her father had written books. So not that I thought I would become a writer, but they were sort of always around.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask then, so when you were younger, there was no real thoughts of sitting down and being a writer. It was just something that your parents or your dad just happened to have done. And I guess that just came in later on.
1: He was Scottish and there was this very strong tradition in Scotland, I mean, Stevenson and Scott and everyone had it, that you had to have a proper job rather than you couldn't just write on the side and you couldn't earn a living from writing. And that's why my father became a lawyer and I probably thought I would become a lawyer as well. And it was only really after I left Cambridge and I went into publishing that I really began to think that perhaps I could also write. But by then I was almost 30.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, it's funny how your life kind of follows through. And like you say, I think when you're younger, you're so influenced by what people around you, your family and friends are doing. You kind of assume that's the route you have to follow. So you returned to Britain. You said you lived in Bermuda to your 10th. Did you return to Britain at that point?
1: Yes, we came back. I mean, what happened was the Black Power Movement had become very powerful in Bermuda. And they had a hit list of three people. And the top of the list was the governor. Number two was the commissioner of police. And number three was my father. And after they killed the first two, I think it was my mother decided we'd better return home. My father's only precaution was to close the curtains at night. He didn't seem too worried. <laughs> but at that point, we came back.
0: Wow, yes, that's a pretty good incentive.
1: I remember looking out the window and thinking I could see people moving around and shapes and things. So it was a sort of slightly it extended one's imagination, certainly. Then it was a great shock so I came back to Scotland. I'd been used to the, the, running around on the beach and not wearing shoes. And here was snow, which I'd never seen before. And I was sent to boarding school with clearly very strict regulations. So it was quite a shock. And I think in some ways, the experience of being sent to boarding school makes you, of course, very self-reliant. But it also, I think, begins to create another private world. A way of surviving sometimes is to become a chameleon, to adapt. And I think that's what's happened with me. And it certainly is what interests me when I write biography, that there are often, in a sense, hidden lives. That people have—it's that the duality of people's lives, which it interests me, and I think is a common theme to the biographies. That's so
0: interesting. It's so interesting that you can pin that back to when you were a child and that change in your life.
1: Yeah, I think you know the experience of, of being separated. I remember you know calling my mother "Sir" for the first few weeks when I came back on a holiday. It changes the whole sort of family dynamics. My sister didn't go to boarding school. And I do think it it does help you, as I say, develop imagination and survival skills, really, to adapt to a different environment, which may be very different from the one that you've been used to. And I think it perhaps certainly made me much more interested, I think, in other people. And that's why I think I'm a biographer rather than, let's say, a historian.
0: It's oh, so interesting. So after you returned to Britain, you obviously went to boarding school. And then, as you mentioned earlier, you went on to read history at Cambridge and then did an MSC at Edinburgh University. And after graduating, you became a bookseller for a while, I understand.
1: I did. And I think bookselling is the best training for anyone in publishing. I'm a great believer in it. And in fact, I had been a bookseller. I worked at Foyles. And I think it's terrific because you get a great sense of the market. In fact, when I first went to publishing, we were encouraged to have Saturday jobs. Working in bookshops so that we really understood what the customer was looking for. And I always say to people who are keen to get into publishing, the best way in and also the best training is to go and work in a bookshop. And I still love going to bookshops just to sort of look around and see them. I think they're never going to, you know, Amazon is never going to replace the joy of that serendipitous sort of wandering in a bookshop and finding things.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, obviously, I'm biased having bookshops, but we hear it time and time again when people come in.
1: Yeah. And I think also the whole curated nature, I think, you know, the wonderful thing about bookshops, you know, is to be able to convey one's love of books to other people and to, you know, to pass on your recommendations. There's much more of that than when I worked in the 1980s. You know, it's become a much more sophisticated, much more career driven occupation. But it's, you know, I'm so pleased that, you know, bookshops have continued to thrive.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think especially over the course of the last 18 months, it's been very interesting to see how all the shops have adapted through these very strange times. So you founded your literary agency in 1988, having worked at a publisher. You worked at Hodder for a while, didn't you? And then formed your own agency.
1: I did. I worked at Hodder as a trainee. So I really went through all the departments working in everything from the factory floor through religious, educational, children's, the lot, which was a good production, which was a very good training. And I think they've stopped that training course now, but it was a very good way to really understand publishing. And then after a year, I was basically given the the opportunity to join Curtis Brown, the literary agents. I think they were looking for young male literary agents there, particularly to one to to take care of John le Carre. The man who represented him was retiring, and they wanted someone who was male. He wanted a male agent. And I suppose someone younger and the other agents there were female. So I went to Curtis Brown. I didn't in the end represent Le Carre. He decided to change agencies, but it was a very good training for three years. And then I think probably because I wanted to write books at that point, I decided to go off my own. It was very young. I really hadn't got very established. And in fact I had to write books and articles in order to support myself But the agency has grown over the last 35 years. And for 20 years, I didn't write at all. I had a family, I had a very busy career. And it's only really in the last six years, I've been able to go back to writing.
0: must be lovely to come back to it, especially if that was kind of what your ambition was at a much younger age. So you published your first biography in 1995, having published a couple of books before then. Did you know at that point that the biographies was where you wanted to be, or did it evolve? How did you get to the point where you were writing biographies?
1: Well, because I'd been brought up in Scotland, I'd sort of been brought up, particularly through my father, with reading John Buchan. And what interested me about John Buchan was that the picture that's presented in some of the previous biographies had suggested he was anti-Semitic, a racist, a sort of old blimp. And that wasn't the picture that I got from the books or indeed from reading other things. So I felt there was a gap there. In fact, I gave the idea to an author for him to do the book, and then he decided not to do it. And I thought, well, actually, that's such a good idea. I'll do it myself. But I like biographies because there's a sort of structure there, there's chronology. And though we play around now as biographers with Slice of Life, which is what I've done with Traitor King, or with Dual Biography, which I did with Batten's, you've got an obvious structure. And I think what I love is that mix of the history, you have to give context, but that psychological insight that you also have to provide. And that micro history, I'm a great believer that history needs to be taken and told through humans, it has to be personalised. And I'm not certainly a Marxist historian who looks at great movements, I think individuals change the course of history. So that's why I love biography. And Buchan hadn't really been done, the previous book had been done 20, 30 years before. So I did that, and then I didn't do anything for 20 years. But yeah, by that stage, I was keen to do biographies. I'd started researching the book on Guy Burgess. In fact, I helped someone write a book on Anthony Blunt when I was at Cambridge. So I had a lot of the interviews with people. And then in the mid-'80s, a lot of these people were still alive. By the time I published in 2015, they were long dead. But I had these wonderful interviews. And so marrying those interviews with new releases of papers, I was able to get the best of both worlds.
0: And how long does it take you to pull this information together for for one of your books?
1: Well, I'm getting quicker. There was a four-year gap between Burgess and the Mountbattens, And then there's been a two-year gap since I did the Mountbattens. But, you know, it is extensive. I mean, you clearly got to build a huge chronology of material from secondary sources you've got private archives to go to, you've got public archives often trying to clear or under freedom of information legislation, get them to open up files. And that can take a long time. I mean, the FBI have sometimes 15 years you wait. And clearly, they're interviewing people. So it is quite time consuming, especially with a full time job, which always takes priority. But I work quite quickly, I write the books in about four or five months. And because I write often without much revision, I mean, it may not be great, but I think it gives the books a certain narrative pace, which if you keep polishing, I think perhaps can be spoiled.
0: And you mentioned, obviously, the fact that you've got your full-time job with your agency. So you obviously must read an awful lot for your work. Do you still manage to find time and enjoyment in reading for yourself, reading for pleasure?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, I have different sorts of reading. I clearly read all the scripts that come in for the agencies, either submissions or when people deliver a book. I also clearly have all the reading I have to do for the research for the books. I also do some reviewing and occasionally ask to do endorsements for books. So those books have to be read. But I still try and make a point of reading books by friends, books that interest me, and perhaps trying to get away from nonfiction by reading fiction, and particularly on holiday, but also on long journeys, train journeys, things like that. I'll always have a book with me. I mean, Even, frankly, going on the tube, I'll always have a book in my pocket and I'll read anything. So often the great thing, I've just been a judge for a biography prize. There were lots of books I had no interest in, but actually opened my eyes to a whole series of, of new people and new approaches and new writers. So I'm always open and people do send me books as well, thinking they might interest me for some whatever reason. And I do tend to look at them. You know, Often people who self-published i don't know travel books or people who've written, I've turned them down, but have managed to find a publisher. So, yeah, I read a lot. And and the, the problem is I don't always finish the books. My wife's very good at starting a book and finishing it. And indeed, she will insist that she will finish it, even if it's not very good. If it's not very good, I'll stop. But quite often, another book comes along, which looks more interesting, and I'll start that one. So I have lots of books with pages with bookmarks halfway through, and I never really get beyond them.
0: It's funny, uh, talking to obviously an awful lot of our guests on the podcast, that really divides opinion whether you should stop reading a book halfway through. It's funny because I used to always be a starter finisher, but having had this job for the last few years, it's become much more of a thing where I'm in the same boat as you, where I have multiple different books by the side of my bed that I can dip into every now and again and every time I look at them I think I really should finish that but haven't quite got around to it
1: I know it's just not enough hours in the day I think there's also an interesting division because in some ways the more we deal with books the more we respect them and want to you know treat them well I don't sort of bend the spines back and things but in some ways also because we deal with books the whole time they become a sort of product that we're involved with and I think for a lot of people then they sort of lose respect for the book they're less reverential because they're just I mean, one of the saddest jobs I had in publishing was dealing with the returns. And what would happen is, I don't know if they still do this in book selling, but people would just tear off the front cover and return it. And then they were pulped. Well, we get the books and they were pulped. Uh, And that always seemed to be heartbreaking that these books, which went out with such fanfare, came back sometimes only a few weeks later.
0: Yeah, we don't have to pull the front cover off anymore, which I'm pleased about because when we did used to have to do that, I used to get quite upset about it. It used to feel very counterintuitive to me. But yeah, that that whole process of returns, I think an awful lot of people that aren't in the trade aren't aware of how that all works.
1: No, I mean, it's a slightly unusual system. Clearly, it's better. The more books that are subbed in, the more likely you are to sell them. But it seems a strange system that people buy something on the basis they can return them. But it does seem a terrific waste of resources. Things being shipped one place, stocked and then having to be returned.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. What was the last book that you read?
1: Gosh, good question. I've just had a big case where for the Mountbattens, I was fighting a, a legal case to get Mountbatten's diaries and letters released. They'd been bought for, with public funds to be open to the public, and then for whatever reason, they were closed. And that campaign is just hopefully coming to an end now, and Southampton University have begun to release them. It's too late for my own book, but I hope it'll be useful for other scholars. A fantastic collection of diaries and letters from the 1920s to 1980. But as a result of that, I was approached by a woman called Jenny Hocking, who had a similar case in Australia, where she tried to get access to communication about between Gough Whitlam and, and, and the Queen. And that was a, she won that case. And there is a big debate going on about how deferential we are to the royal family and the debate about whether the Royal Archives is really a private archive or a public archive, and how much access we should have to royal lives. And my own feeling, which is why I've sort of gravitated more and more towards royal biography, is there are not many good royal biographies around. They tend to be written by journalists based on a few inside sources and the cuttings. And they don't operate as historians looking at primary sources and doing a proper job. So I've become much more interested in trying to tell the story of the monarchy, which of course is central to our history and get behind the headlines and also tell the story warts and all. I think the danger is everyone's very deferential because they want access to the courtiers. And I don't rely on that sort of access. I just want to get to the truth.
0: Yeah, I just imagine it must be so fascinating. I mean, the writing of the book's wonderful, but the the research just must be so interesting with the kind of books that you write. Your latest book, The Traitor King, was published on the 19th of August, and it's about the lives of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor after he abdicated What made you decide to write that particular book?
1: Well, it was really because one of my authors had done a book called Abdication, which took the story up to 1936. And all the books I'd read of the Duke of Windsor basically only had a coda of 30 pages at the end afterwards, as if that was the end of the story. But of course, they lived for another 50 years. And so what interested me is what happens when you walk into the sunset with the so-called fairy tale. What was this all about? What were the repercussions of the abdication on the family and on the couple? And that never had really been looked at. And there'd been books which suggested that his sympathies were, shall we say, not as loyal as they could have been, that there wasn't the fairy tale ending, that actually she had been trapped into this marriage. She hadn't since got herself in too deep. So I began to explore that, and I found that that was indeed the case, that he had not just been duped by the Nazis, but had actively intrigued with the Nazis during the war and before the war, and actually was anti-Semitic and very, very pro-German, as was she, and that also there had not been a happy marriage. They'd frankly been bored and rather aimless in their lives. And I think what also interested me, and the way it interested me with the Matt Batten book, was the way that the subjects try and curate their lives, that they cooperate with tame biographers and journalists, which is, I suppose, natural. And so there's always this tension between the version that they've in a sense helped bring out, particularly at the beginning, and actually what the truth is. And we see this, of course, played out with even contemporary royals now. So that seemed to be an interesting subject. And of course, there were obvious parallels with Harry and Meghan. And because the Crown people knew about them in a way that might not have done before, And Wallace is a very iconic figure, and so it was interesting to try and get beyond, in a sense, the public face and to try and understand their relationship as a couple and actually what they did and how they were treated and whether the reason the royal family had frozen them out was to do with the abdication or was to do with other factors, which I argue it was.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting reading through some of the detail. You talk about his links with the Nazis, so the fact that he got given that, was it a gold box from Hitler gave him? I think it was for a birthday present, wasn't it? Oh, for the wedding. Of the wedding, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, He was in close touch with Hitler. And I think one of the fascinating things is, and this is the other thing that interests me, is when governments try and basically suppress information. So in the way that with Mountbatten, a lot of stuff was suppressed and I had to fight to get it released. Here, we have a very obvious case, for example, with the Duke, at the end of the war, various German documents showing his links to Nazis were actually captured by chance. They were meant to have been destroyed, and they weren't. And then there was, of course, this huge cover-up, which went up to Churchill and Eisenhower, that this stuff would never be made public. So it's fascinating to see the fight that there was. And of course, the, you know, it goes back to Burgess, the fight to cover up the treachery of the Cambridge spies. And it's made me, as a result, much more cynical about the way governments operate and the way that they do try and censor our past for whatever reason. It's not often national security. It's more often embarrassment.
0: So interesting, because what you're talking about in this book obviously happened a long time ago, but there's so many themes that are relevant to today, aren't there? You've already made an nod to the obvious comparison that people are making with Harry and Meghan, when you talk about people's perception of what the Duke and um, Duchess's life was like versus the reality, I mean, that's very similar to what you see on social media these days, isn't it? You know, where people have a perception, but actually the reality is very different. It's just very interesting how some of these themes are just kind of coming through again and again and again.
1: Well, I think where the crown is very clever is it's got the central trope, which is the demands between public duty and private pleasure. And that's always the problem the royals have. I mean, and also how far should they shine light onto the monarchy and how much should there be this mystique? And so you can understand why they try and control the narrative. But I think it's trying to understand the human dimension. I mean, because they're not just public figures, they're living human beings. And that's, I think, what one wants to try and capture, why they behave in the way they do. we, We kind of assume that it's almost preordained. But of course it isn't. The abdication certainly wasn't preordained. And so you can see how individual behaviour can change things. So, for example, the Duke continually tried to get in with the royal family again and was rebuffed, and there were occasions where they would try and create contact again, and he would then blow it by doing something stupid. So it is a sort of human tragedy, the whole thing. I mean, there's a sort of Shakespearean element to it. And, of course, it's all played out in the public glare.
0: Yeah, I felt particularly sad when you were talking about when he was really ill, the last time he saw his mother... And you were saying how he'd lost a load of weight, but he still insisted on wanting to see her. And it felt very sad because it was just, they hadn't seen each other very much over the course of his life. And then they probably both knew that was the last time they were meeting. So like you say, it brings that human slant onto things.
1: The human element to it, exactly, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of doing Philip next because I think he's a man who's very complex and contradictory, but a man of extraordinary importance. You know, I think he has... Reshape the monarchy for the 21st century, and it's such a again a, a dramatic life and varied life, and again there's a great disconnect between the public face and the private man. So royals are interesting to do because of that, but you never know. I mean, I try and find subjects which will have international appeal, which will be justify the cost of the research so that they will sell and whether you feel you've got something new to say and where there's access to material, whether it's archives or letters or people you can interview. There's no point just regurgitating previous books. So I'm always, and that's what I'm clearly trying to do with authors the whole time too, to try and find subjects that will be interesting for them to write about and hopefully interesting for people to read about.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you as well, I mean, obviously, you've got your day to day work with the agency, and then you've got your books, how do you balance that work? What's really lovely about the way you do is that you can see it from both sides, which I think is a massive advantage that an awful lot of authors and and writers in general don't necessarily see. But how's that balance? How do you manage it?
1: Well, the agency is always the priority. So I'll always read a script first or do some royalty statements or pay someone. So I tend to write late at night, or I do try, once I finish research and, and I'm going to write, I then try and clear weekends so that I can have a run of two days. The problem is you, Most authors immerse themselves in the subject and they live and breathe it and it's fine. For me, I come to it every Saturday and I've forgotten what happened the previous week. So it's a bit tricky. That's why I try and write literally a chapter a weekend so that I get a segment done. But certainly the, the publishing informs the writing. There are not many people in publishing who write, but it's useful because I have spent 30 years reading lots of books, and there's a sort of osmosis there of what works and doesn't work. You learn some of the tricks, short sentences and short chapters, things like that, to get a narrative pace, varying the tone, getting a strong voice. But also by being an author, it's helped the publishing. So I have contacts now with festivals and bookshops, people like you, which I can then use to help promote the authors. And some authors like it. They like the fact that they have an agent who writes. Others, I think, feel jealous. They wouldn't mind if I played tennis every weekend, but they don't like the idea that I might be doing the same thing as them. So it's, it's slightly difficult, and I do sort of rather play it down. A lot of them didn't know I wrote books at all until recently.
0: Goodness, it suddenly appeared as something new in their eyes.
1: <laughs> it's, they were slightly surprised, yeah. and better than they thought, they said. <laughs>
0: So with your line of work, I'm probably going to ask you an impossible question now, but I have a theory that everybody that reads has got at least one book that's had a major impact on them, so kind of a life-changing book, and that could be professionally or it could be personally. Do you have a book like that?
1: Yes, I do. I think I have several books. I mean, I remember as a child reading Anatomy of Britain by Anthony Sampson and being really opening my eyes to the networks that operated, the way the establishment operated, how interconnected people were from the same schools or universities. So that was, I think, a real eye-opener. And then the second eye-opener, I think, was just before going to university. Late 1970s, we had Anthony Blunt being exposed. The Sunday Times had an article almost every week about some new Cambridge spy. And that sort of captured my imagination. It was just coming to the end of the Cold War, but we'd sort of grown up in it. I remember travelling and going through East Berlin and seeing the sniffer dogs and the snow and things. And that really caught my imagination. It was sort of cowboys and Indians. And so I became very interested in spies and that's why I helped the man write the book on Blunt. And the book that really shaped that was Andrew Boyle's Climb to Treason, which I think still 40 years later stands out as a groundbreaking book in terms of intelligence history. I mean I should say apart from writing role books I'm very interested in intelligence history which is not a subject that really people took much interest in. There was a course when I was at Cambridge, and it was regarded as the hidden bit of history that we didn't know about. But as more and more MI5 files are released and people are more prepared to talk, I think we suddenly realize that there's extra element of history that hasn't been covered, and it's a bit like the duality of doing the biography. So I think I may well come back to an intelligent subject if I can find a good, strong subject like Guy Burgess. But yeah, I mean, books certainly do change one's lives in a big way.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I like asking that question of people, because I like hearing their interpretation of the answer. And what's really fascinating for me is that as a reader, you could read books all the way through your life, and some of them just kind of come and go, and others just have that really profound impact. And there's absolutely no way of knowing. There's no rhyme or reason as to which one is the one that's going to have that
1: impact on you. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes the timing. The books that I remember reading and, and thinking were wonderful, but bit like films, and then you reread them and you wonder what all the fuss was about. There's some people that I can reread, even War and Graham Greene and people like that, LeCarry. So it sort of varies. I remember loving John Fowles's books and yet finding them a bit tricksy now. So they're what I call adolescent books. Thomas Hardy is a good example, which is sort of quite elemental and dramatic, but actually often pretty far-fetched. And some people will put John Buchan in that territory. But I think the thing with John Buchan is get away from the Richard Haney books and read some of the other books, the Edward Leithan books and some of the historical novels, and you'll find he's a much more profound and interesting writer than people realise.
0: Yeah, many strings to his bow. So back to today, back to you. Obviously, your book's just come out on the 19th of August. Um, So I'm assuming you're currently focused on that. But what's your plans for the near future? Are you working on another book or are you focused on your agency? What's happening for the rest of the year?
1: Well, it's quite busy promoting the book. And I'm hoping to update the Traitor King book. One of the problems of lockdown was that many of the archives were closed. And so I'm hoping to go to the States in September and do some research and archives there. I mean, one of the frustrating things is there are papers relating to interviews with people who knew the Mountbatten held by one of the biographers, but that archive doesn't open until, until even much later in the year. So I'll be updating the Traitor King book. With the release of the Mountbatten Diaries and Letters, there may be scope to update the Mountbatten book or to maybe even try and edit the letters and diaries. As I say, I'm thinking about a book on Prince Philip, so I'm just reading the background about that. Meanwhile, I carry on with the agency. I promised my wife I will go on holiday. And who knows what comes. I mean, one of the great things about publicizing books, particularly at festivals, is people often come up and say, I knew your subject and here are some papers or letters that you might be interested in. So you never know what might just emerge and might take one off in a new direction.
0: That's fascinating. And, and with the nature of the books you write, it's lovely to be able to have that opportunity to then update them. You don't see that too often happening, but when it does, it's always kind of a, quite a nice treat, especially when you've really enjoyed the first iteration of the book to then see what other information appears.
1: Yes. No, no. I think I love getting feedback from readers and meeting readers and getting some response because, you know, apart from reviews and Amazon reviews, you produce your little baby and it goes out in the wilderness. You don't quite know what people think of it. So that contact with the public is very important. And I think the fact that we have more literary festivals, more events going on in bookshops is fantastic because in some ways, the more distant we get in terms of, you know, sometimes ordering books online, the more contact we have and the more ability to discuss books and book clubs and things, the better. So I think what's so encouraging is the publishing industry constantly reinvents itself. And everyone says everything's dead. And then it comes back actually stronger than before. Mm.
0: And I think we're talking about this at quite a topical time, really, because of course we are now at the point where life is vaguely returning back to normal life after the craziness of COVID. I mean, I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to go back to completely normal and we'll probably see some more dips as we have in the past but it must be quite nice for you having your book come out now and knowing that you'll be able to actually go and speak to the readers in person whereas you know if it had come out this time last year that just wouldn't have been an
1: option. Yes it's great and I mean one of the problems we had with the Mountbatten book in paperback it was uh, I think a book of the year but and and all the Watterson's shops front of house and uh, for Christmas and then we had lockdown and the bookshops closed and that was the end of that. And I think it cost us possibly 30,000, 40,000 copies. So, you know, lockdown affected lots of, I mean, didn't affect me quite as bad as lots of other people, but it's good that we are beginning to get back to normal again.
0: Long may it continue. Well, Andrew, it's just been absolutely lovely chatting to you today. It's so interesting hearing about your work and I'm sure your book's going to do incredibly well. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for those wonderful questions.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.